Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we interview philosophers about their books in ethics, metaphysics, epistemology, philosophy of mind, and many other areas. Today's interview is with Michael Strevens, Professor of Philosophy at New York University. We're talking about his new book, Tychomancy, Inferring Probability from Causal Structure, which is just out from Harvard University Press. When we're faced with a choice between door number one, door number two, and door number three, how do we infer correctly that there's an equal chance of the prize being behind any of the doors? How is it that we are generally correct to choose the shorter of two checkout lines in the supermarket when we're in a hurry? Strevens argues that we are all equipped with a reliable, probably innate, and not fully conscious skill at probabilistic reasoning, a physical intuition that enables us to infer physical probabilities from perceived symmetries. This skill, Strevens argues, is found in six-month-old infants watching as red and white balls are removed in different proportions from an urn. But it also underlies important advances in sciences, such as James Clerk Maxwell's reasoning when he hit upon the correct distribution of velocities of a moving particle in a gas. In this intriguing essay on a very special type of cognitive capacity, Strevens defends controversial claims about the rules guiding our reasoning about physical probability, its probable innateness, and its role in science as well as in everyday judgment. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Michael Strevens. Hello. Hi. Uh, nice to have you on New Books and Philosophy. Well, it's great to be on the show. Thanks um, very much for having me. Yeah. Um, I'm uh, eager to talk about your new book, Tychomancy, or as, as you helpfully describe in the, in the cover, The Divination of Chances. And uh, this is a, an account of the nature of what you call physical intuition, um, in this case an, an innate skill, according to you, um, at probabilistic reasoning. Um, based on a principle of physical indifference. Um, and there's a lot of controversial claims that you make about this uh, reasoning skill, um, some of the rules that uh, govern it, um, its role in scientific reasoning and everyday reasoning, um, its innateness um, and its truth conduciveness. Um, so I'm hoping we will get to all of those points um, in the course of the interview. Um, but before we get into the actual uh, content of the book, um, it's always uh, interesting to start with a question about um, how you got to philosophy and to this particular topic and, and to the writing of this, this book. Well, I got to philosophy uh, uh, through a process of ever-increasing abstraction. Whatever I was studying, I wanted to study the foundations of it. So I ended up, uh, in the end, although I'd started out as a 
mathematics, computer science, physics major at college, um, staying on for an extra year or two uh, and becoming a philosophy major. Uh, First of all, interested in philosophy of mind and uh, uh, at that time, teleosemantics and therefore evolutionary explanation. Uh, uh, From there to the role of probability in evolutionary explanation uh, and from there to some of the issues that I discuss in the book. So you you start with um, a puzzle, and you you present the puzzle in terms of the reasoning of a you know very famous episode in in the history of, of physics uh, from James Kirk Maxwell uh, when he was reasoning towards a claim about certain velocity velocity distributions of a particle uh, in a gas, and you go through what you call the official derivation of his conclusion, and then the the unofficial derivation, um, and it's the second one, uh, on your view, that really illustrates the sort of reasoning, um, which you call equiprobabilistic reasoning, um, that is the real derivation, sort of the, it, it, all, even if it's unofficial, behind how he hit upon the, the right distribution. Um, so maybe mm-hmm. you could start us off by sort of going through the example and explaining, you know, what equi- what you mean by equiprobabilistic reasoning and, and micro-equiprobabilistic reasoning and um, equidynamical reasoning. Sure. Well, there's really just one kind of reasoning, which I call uh, equidynamical reason- reasoning. So that's the kind of reasoning where you look at the causal or physical structure of something, and that could be something as complicated as a society, but in Maxwell's case, we're just thinking about little particles whizzing around in a box. Uh, And you make some inferences about the probabilities of different events occurring. The contrast is with statistical reasoning. We simply keep a track of how often something happens and, and Uh, from that infer a probability. So on the one hand, you're observing some event and assuming that it will continue to happen about as often in the future as it happens in the past. Uh, That's statistical reasoning. Then equidynamic reasoning, you are not looking at the statistics, but uh, looking at what brings about those statistics and inferring probabilities from those facts. So Maxwell, at at a time when the Uh, the kinetic theory of gases was just being revived. So for a long time, it was the caloric theory which had been worked on, the idea that um, uh, that heat is is some sort of uh, uh, fluid and that uh, things like the the heat in gases should be understood so the just uh, what makes a gas hot should be understood as a kind of a certain quantity. Uh, that theory, which had been mathematically worked out uh, and in some ways uh, very carefully, was falling by the wayside in, in favor of the old kinetic theory, which was the favorite in the 17th century. Now it's the 1800, uh, 1800s. Uh, for the kinetic theory where the heat in a gas is just the kinetic energy of these little particles flying around in the box at enormous speeds banging into things. So that's, a, that's a, as I say, an old picture of what was going on in the gas. What Maxwell managed to do was make it quantitative by thinking about the probabilities with which uh, the particles would uh, take on certain velocities or be found in certain positions. Uh, and to do that... Uh, he had to think about the probabilities of these microscopic particles uh, 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 in a position where 
uh, no one was able to make any observation of their properties. So the statistical way of reasoning was just closed off to him. The only way to uh, make inferences about these probabilities was to think about uh, whatever it was that was bringing about the properties that was causing them to travel at this or that velocity or be in such and such a position, which meant thinking about the probabilities related to collisions, because it's collisions between particles which spread them around the box, give them their velocities, and so on. How's that so far? Yeah, that's fine. So he, in a uh, famous passage in just a few paragraphs, he derives a very... uh, uh, a pretty simple form for the probability distribution of the velocities of, of the particles in a gas, which turned out to be absolutely correct. So this is a rather amazing thing. Uh, without actually taking any measurements, just thinking about how the whole thing works, he manages to infer not just a distribution, but what turns out ultimately to be the correct distribution, although he had no way of checking it at the time. Uh, a remarkable thing. Uh, this points to some kind of power uh, that Maxwell had to get from the physical facts of collision. So he just thought about these particles as little balls flying around and bouncing off one another like billiard balls on a 3D table. Uh, some power to get from that to the probabilities. One, one possibility is that Maxwell was just a super smart physics genius kind of guy, so he was able to do things that ordinary mortals can't do. Uh, What I argue in my book is that, in fact, we all have the power to make these kinds of inferences. Uh, What made Maxwell special was not that he uh, was able to make a new kind of inference, but that he uh, applied his reasoning skills in a very advanced way to a problem that nobody had really thought about before. Well, okay, so this this does get to a... a uh, first sort of question I had was, um, uh, you know, the the one response is to think, well, you know, he just he got lucky. I mean, or or at least uh, if he didn't just get lucky, he had certain knowledge base that he was relying on um, that pointed him towards the truth. Um, the the question is basically. Uh, it seems like he could have gone through the very same reasoning processes um, and that the world might not have, you know, been that way. And so the question, I suppose, is why I think this, um, this ability that we have to reason probabilistically is truth-conducive. Um, and, and I can put the worry... Um, in terms of, you know, sort of more popular terms, in, t- in terms of Daniel Kahneman's recent book on thinking fast and slow, I mean, the way you describe our capacity for equiprobabilistic reasoning, um, it, it seems to belong to the fast, you know, not rational, not truth-conducive uh, system. Um, so what is it that makes it reasonable or reliable? What what make, What is it that that ensures that it does actually get us or Maxwell to the truth um, as opposed to him just having gotten lucky or relied on other background information. Mm -hmm. Let me give you a a short answer and then a slightly longer answer. Sure. So the short answer is that that these System 1 style processes, the kind of thinking that that happens, uh, but that we don't seem to consciously control or direct or even necessarily uh, uh, 
fully understand the the principles of that kind of reasoning is off a Kahneman is famous for showing how that kind of reasoning sometimes leads to bad results. But he himself believes, Kahneman believes, that it usually, when it's applied in normal context, leads to good results. Uh, if it didn't, we would all be dead. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's there's some uh, prima facie reason to think that, that this reasoning will work most of the time uh, in normal situations. Uh, even though it is a, it is it does have more kinship with system one reasoning than with system two reasoning. Mm-hmm. Uh, now the longer answer: Well, Maxwell wasn't applying it in uh, a normal situation. He was sitting in his study, looking at some pieces of paper, thinking about uh, 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 molecules that are too tiny for the eye to see. Why does it work there too? Uh, was was he just lucky? He was. I think he was lucky in some ways. Uh, he was just speculating that the molecules of gases would act like little round balls. Now, most gas molecules are not, in fact, spherical, uh, but non-spherical molecules have enough of the same properties in their collisions as spherical molecules. So the results he derived for the spherical case also hold in the non-spherical case, uh, as long as the geometry isn't too crazy. Was that luck, uh, or did he see that the arguments could be extended? There, I don't really know. Uh, as you as you remarked when you uh, asked the uh, first mention Maxwell, the the manuscript, well, this paper, which started as as a talk, uh, has a more complicated structure than you would think. There's one way to read it where it seems Maxwell is just um, conjecturing and. Uh, on that reading, it really does seem like he's he's uh, happily blundered into the right result. But a part of the point of this book is to read the paper a little bit more closely and find what uh, I call the uh, alternative derivation, the unofficial derivation, where uh, some other stuff is going on that I don't think is guaranteed to lead to the truth, but uh, uh, that is quite a bit more secure. So it's it's a complicated story. There's aspects of la- luck and there's aspects uh, of uh, not luck, but the systematic application of principles that usually work. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was Maxwell was lucky, but he wasn't just lucky. He was making his luck. Okay. Um, one of the uh, let me let me go into uh, uh, an important piece of the of the total story that you go into in the I think it's the third chapter, um, mm-hmm. where you draw attention to a you know important distinction that was eventually made in the history of probability between you know physical probability and epistemic prob- probability, and then and then you go on to defend a corresponding distinction between two principles of indifference, right, a physical indifference mm-hmm. principle, and then the epistemic. Uh, one and you sort of set the epistemic one aside. Um, so can you can you explain those indifference principles or the one that you're going to focus on at least? Um, mm. And also the question, you know, are they really um, independent sort of principles, or is it that physical indifference, you know, depends on, you know, in some sense, since it depends on, I think, uh, our total ignorance of a particular situation, you know, that seems to be some sort of an epistemic state. Mm-hmm. Well, I think 
the physical indifference, which is what I, I rename it, equidynamics, in the hope of uh, uh, getting away from getting away from the idea that total ignorance is a precondition. Mm-hmm. Physical indifference is uh, an inference from specific information about a system, its causal structure, to further physical information about the system, uh, prob- it, the values of certain probabilities. So I look at balls bouncing around in a box and I infer a certain probability distribution over their velocities, if I'm clever enough, as Maxwell was. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting from from, in that case, relatively specific information about the box. Now, parenthetically, Maxwell, of course, did not have that information. He was just speculating that that's the way gases looked. But, right. but still, the form of the inference is to take the, uh, specific premises and derive uh, interesting further uh, conclusions which go beyond those premises, but uh, which still do re- do require uh, a reasonable uh, uh, level of of either knowledge or speculation, or at least a fairly strong claim about the way the system works. The classical principle of indifference, well, maybe I shouldn't call it classical, the principle of indifference as it's existed in 20th century philosophy uh, is paradigmatically applied under conditions of total ignorance, not knowing anything at all about what's going on. So I give as an example of this kind of thinking uh, a case where I I simply tell you that there's there's three doors in front of you. Behind one of the doors is a tiger. Behind another one is an endowed chair in philosophy, and there's nothing behind the third. Um, Which door should you choose, assuming you want the chair and not the tiger, let's say? Well, you have no idea. In, in, in one sense, you have no idea. Uh, I haven't told you anything about the process by which I decided to put one thing and, or another behind one of the doors. Mm-hmm. Still, it seems to make sense to think that the chair is equally likely to be behind any door. Now, there I'm not using any information about, about physical processes. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm just settling for... Uh, uh, a conclusion of equal probabilities, it seems, really based on total ignorance of what's going on. Mm-hmm. So I think that that kind of that kind of thinking is uh, really uh, does play a role in human cognition. Uh, but the book isn't about that. Uh, it's about this more specific kind of reasoning where I, I have information and I parlay it into yet still more information, positive information. That's Equidynamics. Okay, so what are the um, the symmetries or structural properties? You know that on on which we to which we apply this this physical difference uh, principle. Um, you know, how do we fix on the relevant sorts of symmetries or structural po- properties? Well, it's it's complicated. Now, it can seem very simple. Uh, the, the paradigm of physical indifference reasoning is is not these historical episodes I discuss in the book. The, the well, not By paradigm, I mean not my personal paradigm, but the philosophical paradigm. It's something like looking at a 12-sided die, mm-hmm. a dodecahedral die, and seeing that there is an equal probability when that thing is rolled uh, of any face ending up uppermost. So there, there's something very striking about the object. It's total symmetry, 12 ways. And that same symmetry turns up uh, in the conclusion. Uh, That that 
has people has gotten a lot of philosophers to think that symmetry is key, and there's some very fairly simple relation between the symmetry, uh, the physical symmetry in the object in this case, and the and the probabilistic symmetry, equal probabilities for each face. But I think in fact that's an unusual case. It's not a very good example of the kind of equidynamic reasoning that uh, normally occurs. Uh, the the key premise for Maxwell uh, is something that's not really about symmetry per se at all. He starts from uh, what seems to him the obvious point that the probability of a gas molecule being uh, uh, anywhere in a very small region of space inside the the box that the gas is notionally in uh, is uh, it's is uniform. That is, if you take a small enough space, the particle is equally likely to be anywhere in that space. Then he thinks about the dynamics of a collision between one particle and another. So he imagines one particle is going to collide with, with the other. Uh, he uses this, this assumption of equal probability over very small areas. That's what uh, I call micro, micro equiprobability. He uses that idea to figure out what the uh, probability distribution will be over uh, a molecule's velocity after such a collision. And that I think is actually a lot closer to the kinds of inferences that uh, uh, most often occur in equidynamical thinking. That is, you, you take a fairly weak assumption about initial probabilities, which comes from this suite of equidynamic principles, and then you apply it to some kind of physical interaction, which doesn't have to have anything specifically symmetrical about it, although that always makes the reasoning a bit easier, and draw some conclusion about the probability distribution over what happens next. Mm-hmm. And there's quite, a bit, there's quite a bit more to it than that, but here in, in answering this particular question, I really want to emphasize that I think the right in understanding physical indifference, it's a good idea to move away from the assumption that it's all based on physical symmetries. Okay, because one one of the questions I did have was, you know, once we get beyond, say, the scientific examples, um, you know, if this is an innate, and we'll get to that in a second, um, mm-hmm. uh, capacity that we all have, um, then presumably it's 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 something that we apply to a lot of you know day to day probabilistic reasoning, which is which is not you know for most people, you know, questions about you know, dice, you know, dice or, um, or right. particles in a box, you know, it's, it's, right. it's more like, you know, will they have that in black or something like that? Um, and so, uh, this, this, the scope question is, you know, for every, for, you know, ordinary people using this capacity, what would, where there aren't, I guess, these symmetries, um, how, how would, how would this work? Mm-hmm. Well, the book as the the book is about the scientific cases, right. and not and not the everyday cases. I have a few pages on that at the end. Uh, but uh, what what's an, what's an example of a of an everyday case of equidynamic uh, reasoning? Here's here's one. Suppose um, I'm at the airport and I I have a tight connection and I have to get from one end of the terminal to the other. Uh, 
here's a question. Shall I take one of those little moving platform things? Uh, or if I do that, is there too high a chance of being stuck behind someone slow? Yes. Uh, uh, should I... Should I just uh, push them? Push them out of the way. (laughs) That's not equidynamic reasoning. That's something else entirely. (laughs) Uh, Well, one one factor that's going to come into my thinking is I'm going to I'm going to think the more people uh, that are on one of these moving moving things. What are they called, by the way? People Uh, conveyor belts. Yeah, I think so. Moving walkways. Yeah. The more likely. I am to be stuck behind a slow person or if I'm choosing between two of these things, I'll choose the one with fewer people on it. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Because I'm thinking that there's a certain number of slow people at the airport. They, as they approach the ramps, they'll be somewhat spread out. Um, they'll be equally likely to be on the left or the right. They don't really care what ramp they take. And so they're equally likely to get on one or the other. So there'll be a, equal proportions of slow people on on both roughly speaking mm-hmm. uh, that means I should take the less populated one because that way I'll encounter fewer slow people okay. so that's a, that's making a, a big deal out of something that seems very simple and straightforward but uh, these these processes of, of reasoning that are somewhat automated do all seem very simple and straightforward until you try to think about how we could possibly be making these calculations. And they turn out to be not so easy. So this is a case where you have something a little bit like Maxwell's initial assumption that people are, uh, uh, are uh, spread out. Mm-hmm. In, in this case, actually, symmetrically. Uh, and then you think about the dynamics, in this case, not the physical dynamics, but the psychological dynamics of the choice between the two moving belts. And you think the slow people at least are indifferent to which one they take. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you reason accordingly from there. Okay. So, yeah. so people, in, people in crowds are, I think, one place where we use this kind of reasoning. Um, we also use it for physical things. Okay. I can talk more about that if you like. Yeah. Well, let's um, – I want to – you know, you go through um, uh, a number of the specific rules um, that, that comprise this capacity. Um, but I want, I want to first uh, – because you, you address it earlier, the, the issue of – uh, basically, the the innateness of this capacity, um, and you do that by going through some of some very interesting experiments in infant cognition, where you have six months old uh, infants um, or, or a little bit older um, uh, looking at particular events of drawing. B- balls of different colors from containers and, and, you know, measuring their looking time and are they expressing surprise or not. Um, so maybe you can explain, you know, a little bit about um, those experiments and how, you know, that supports your claim that this these abilities are, are, are innate in some sense. Sure. Let me let me say first, as a kind of um, preface, that mm-hmm. that the the really important claim in the book is not that this ability is innate, but that it's universal; that we all have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, innateness is an explanation for the fact we all have it. But I I don't think I'm too much of the book hinges on mm-hmm. the innateness. But nevertheless, it's very difficult to ignore this 
to me, even to me, quite surprising evidence that extremely young children, six months old, essentially, little babies who can um, barely, uh, well, they can't find their way around the world. They're barely, um, uh, they've just started smiling and looking around, really, that they already seem to be thinking uh, equidynamically. That is, uh, they can do the equivalent of looking at the 12-sided die and seeing that each face is equally likely. Now, in this particular uh, experiment, what you have is drawings from an urn rather than die rolling. So uh, uh, what seems to be going on is these, um, these babies see a drawing from an urn containing many red balls and just a few white balls, and they expect the sample that's drawn to be mostly red uh, 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 Vice versa, if it's mostly white and just a few red balls, they expect the sample to be mostly white. Uh, rather amazing, really. Uh, there's more, too. They're sensitive to how the balls are drawn. If the experimenter seems to be rummaging around looking for certain balls, then they stop assuming that the balls are randomly drawn, as far as we can tell. Whereas if the same researcher is blindfolded so they can't see what they're choosing, then they go back to thinking it's all random. Mm-hmm. Or at least that's the – we're inferring from their – from various metrics that that's, that's effectively what they're thinking. Right. Well, they this, can't, this can't was, exactly report to us. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that was one of, the, one of the questions, you know, I had. I mean, there's certainly, you know, when you're measuring looking time differences, mm-hmm. um, and these are interpreted as, as violation of expectation, Um uh, that seems to be, you know, that's that's a pretty standard psychological interpretation of, of looking time differences. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it seems like you uh, you want to claim that this is uh, this, that they're actually kind of generating some sort of inferences, or, or they're making inferences. They're generating hypotheses. Um, and I was just wondering if you know you might say a bit more about about that what seems to be somewhat of an additional uh, interpretation of the looking time differences. Well, nobody is interested in looking time per se. So every developmental psychologist who uses looking time is, is, is making some further inference about uh, what the infant is expecting to see. Mm -hmm. So in this case, what they're expecting is a sample that roughly reflects the, uh, the composition of the urn. Uh, are they thinking probabilistically? Well, I think the the urn studies, or, or at least the little bit of them that we've talked about, is not enough to show this. But there's further studies having to do with uh, one-off events, so in effect, a drawing of a, a single ball, uh, and so on, and. Yet still more stuff where they the balls themselves are manipulated, so some of them are sticky. They they stick to the sides of the urn. That really strongly suggests that anything, any conclusion that uh, an adult will make about these drawings mm-hmm. will also be made by an infant or maybe to be a little bit more cautious. The infant will act as though it's drawing those conclusions about probabilities. Mm-hmm. Well, let me – so you draw a distinction you know, at the very beginning between statistical – thinking uh, and and probabilistic thinking mm-hmm. and 
in in these experiments, um, the infants are first, you know, shown balls and, and so forth, right? So they're given a, a uh, they're they're trained in a certain way um, before they're actually mm-hmm. tested, right. and so. Why would this be probabilistic rather than statistical? You mean equidynamic rather than statistical? Yeah. Because uh, what they don't get shown is uh, is actual drawings. So in other words, they're not – they don't see that drawing after drawing from the mostly red urn produces mostly red balls. Mm -hmm. Um, The most reasonable thing to think is that they uh, are simply – not familiar with this kind of setup. Now, maybe that's maybe that's wrong. Maybe they have uh, learned from some past experience that uh, it, it's just the case that um, the balls, the proportion of balls drawn from the urn, tends to reflect the proportion in the urn. It's still pretty difficult to explain why they modify their, their expectations based on uh, uh, such things as whether the experimenter is blindfolded or not or whether the balls have little velcro pads on them that make them stick to the urn Mm -hmm. Uh, if they really at six months old have uh, enough experience Mm -hmm. to inductively make all of those inferences i would be astonished um maybe but i mean and i mean i'm just sort of playing devil's advocate here Mm -hmm. what an empiricist would say is that you know well actually uh, you know, the uh, the input is, is quite rich. Um, they have all kinds of experience. Um, I mean, it's the same, it's the same sort of debate that you have over, uh, over language, right? Um, you know, is, our, um, do we have an innate language acquiring mat- module? Or is there enough information in the in the input for infants to derive Certain principles of syntax and so forth um, from the you know statistically from the from the input, and I, I would assume that these in, these same experiments could could be interpreted that way as well, um, especially given how uh, the on on both cases in both senses there's there's richness in in the result, and there needs to be an explanation of of that richness and you seem to be you want to go with you know the richness of the reasoning um rules inside and an uh, empiricist would want to go with the richness of the of the input well i should i should point out that an empiricist could still give an equidynamic interpretation of this reasoning so you could think you could on the one hand be an empiricist about equidynamics and say that rules of equidynamics are learned Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, but then say in these cases that the infants are, are not using their previous experience with urns and velcroed balls. They're actually thinking their way through the case using the rules of equidynamics. Mm-hmm. And really it's that last part I care about. Right. What I really care about is that ordinary people and scientists alike uh, – uh, have this ability to think equidynamically, whether they learn that ability or, or uh, 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 simply inherit it, mm-hmm. uh, is is less important to me. Okay, we yeah, are. You you did although, mention that before, and that's although I do give the I do opt for native. It seems to me that na- nativism is the more likely explanation, but. Uh, uh, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't undermine any of the major theses of the book. 
uh, if it turns out that the rules of equidynamics are learned. Okay. Um, so let's let's get to those rules. Um, so in the in the middle section of the book, um, you have a couple uh, a, a couple of chapters on uh, what you call stirring, shaking. Uh, bouncing and and unifying, um, in which you go through, you explain each of the elements of of what you call the equilibrium rule package. Um, so maybe you could explain, you know, exactly the in more detail the the rules that make up this probabilistic reasoning skill. Well, maybe it's um, it, it might take a little bit too long to go through each rule and explain how it works. That's okay. Yeah, but. Um, there, uh, I can explain uh, the kinds of it. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll talk about three kinds of rules. Okay, one is the kind of rule that I've already talked about quite a bit, where that simply allows you to make an assumption like uh, Maxwell's assumption that over very small areas, the probabilities will be roughly equal. Okay, so mm-hmm. that even if the probability distribution is not uniform in the large, still little chunks of it will will be roughly uniform, which turns out to, uh, 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 even though it's not a very strong assumption, to be quite useful if you then think about the dynamics of certain processes that depend on very small differences in initial conditions, like collisions between molecules. That's that's one kind of equidynamic rule, the, kind, the rule that gives you something, maybe just a, a, weak, a weak something uh, to get started on in mm-hmm. thinking about probabilities. Then another kind of rule is a, a, a long-term rule. The equilibrium rule is one of these. It, mm-hmm. it tells you uh, uh, in circum- certain circumstances uh, that you can uh, uh, assume that a probability distribution will settle down and assume a certain fixed form. Okay. Now, there's that. That's an interesting. I said the first kind of rule had an interestingly uh, uh, weak output, and this one too has a somewhat weak output. It tells you that the in, in such and such circumstances that the the distribution will settle down, but it doesn't tell you what it will settle down to. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, as I, I show with the case of Maxwell, just knowing it will settle down can uh, 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 allow you if you're. If you're clever to derive some consequences there and then, and even if you're not clever, knowing that there's a single fixed probability distribution allows you to do regular statistical inductive inference. You know once the probability distribution is settled down that uh, statistics uh, that you measure right now will be accurate guides to what will happen in the future. So it solves on a very small scale the uh, problem of induction, if you like, mm-hmm. telling you uh, that in certain cases it's okay to project future performance from present and past performance. Okay. Um, I, th- I think I said I would mention one more kind of rule, yeah, but I don't, yeah. I don't need to do that. If you, if, if, no, no, go uh, ahead. Oh, sorry. All right. Well, I, one, one more rule that I call the uniformity rule actually allows you in certain more specific cases where these probabilities have settled down to assume that the distribution really is uniform. Uh-huh. So equal probability, for example, of a, a gas molecules traveling in uh, any direction would be an example of this. Uh, or maybe in a crowd, under certain circumstances, there's an equal probability of a certain person's facing in any direction. Mm-hmm. You can see that's not always going to be true. Part of the 
The trick is to, is to give some fairly general conditions under which it will be true. So that gives you some sense of the kind of rules mm-hmm. that are being used here. Okay. In, in, um, in, in later chapters, then you turn to, you know, away from sort of the physical, physical cases and you turn to biology mm-hmm. um, and, um, and you use uh, evolutionary theory. Um, as mm. an example of how we use the capacity to generate uh, good theories, um, so maybe you can explain the the application of your of your outlook to to the case of biology and, and evolution. Well, what I what I do uh, for the most part uh, in these chapters is to look at the passage, the, the chapter and really the beginning of the chapter in which Darwin first introduces the notion of natural selection mm-hmm. in The Origin of Species. And he uses these two examples. Uh, and uh, what he's trying to do is persuade people that uh, small physiological differences can uh, uh, lead to uh, a certain persistent selective advantage so that one variant does, even if it just does a little better than the other variant, uh, continues to do better in a systematic way and eventually takes over the population. That's natural selection at work. So in Darwin's reasoning about these two cases, first of all, I show, as as some other scholars of Darwin have, have said before me, uh, that Darwin is thinking probabilistically, stochastically, mm-hmm. uh, so it's impossible to make sense of what he's up to unless you think of him as as as, as uh, making judgments about frequency of, of events that that are not in any way determined by the situation, but are just very likely given the situation, namely the the frequencies with that that that. Um, constitute natural selection, one variant's doing better than another. And second, and, and of course this is where uh, I'm more lighting out on my own, I, uh, I try to show that the kinds of probabilistic facts, in particular the differences in probabilities that make one variant fitter than the other, uh, Darwin is deriving equidynamically. So he's thinking about the physical or biological structure of the situation and uh, inferring from that structure that uh, one organism will achieve some desirable outcome with a higher probability than another. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, do you have other... I, I know that was the one you kind of focused on. Do you have other other examples of uh, in biology of, um, of equiprobabilistic reasoning behind you know, theory selection or mm-hmm. hypothesis selection. Yeah. So that's, so there, the, the, that's, that's what I've just described as the role of equidynamics in a uh, scientifically, obviously very, very important argument. Right. Uh, but I think that the same kind of thinking is important for model construction all the time. So uh-huh. when you're building a model of some complicated system, even just a, a gas, but certainly an ecosystem, uh, you're leaving about 99.999% of what's going on in the system out of your description. Mm-hmm. Your model is only going to work if what you leave out is irrelevant to the kinds of behavior you're interested in. Mm-hmm. So you need to have uh, some kind of criterion 
for deciding even before you start doing the science, because here you're just putting together a model for the first time perhaps, some kind of criterion for deciding what's likely to be relevant and what's not. Of course, it's, it's, it's too much to ask that you have a criterion that, that is infallible. You just want one that allows you to do, some, do a lot better than guessing randomly. So this, this problem is a problem that I think is solved by uh, physical intuition of all sorts, not just equidynamic intuition. So whether it's physics or biology or uh, social science, scientists are able to use their, their grasp, their intuitive grasp of the way things work to, to rule out some things, as, or not rule out, maybe I should say, but to think that some things are very unlikely to be important and others are much more likely to be important, that some things they ought to keep track of and other things they don't really have to keep track of. So if you're in the biological case, it seems to make sense uh, to keep track of uh, population number, or maybe that's what you're interested in keeping track of. Mm -hmm. But it seems okay uh, to leave out such details as where particular individual organisms are uh, uh, or even... uh, uh, different distributions of the uh, different sexes or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one of Darwin's examples where he's talking about the uh, uh, evolution of, um, of uh, plants using nectar to attract pollinating insects has some of this character. There's a lot of stuff he leaves out in the little scenario he sketches that he knows he can probably leave out because of equidynamic thinking, because uh, uh, of the probabilistic irrelevance of these factors to the changes in frequencies that he's really interested in. So, um, uh, this is so you don't really discuss in the book these these sort of you know ha- determinations of relevance, um, and that seems to be. I mean that's that wasn't the topic um, of the book. It's it's more about once you, once however it is that we determine uh, which features are relevant, which, which are the symmetries we want to focus on. You know, then we apply this probabilistic reasoning to mm-hmm. it. Um, do you? But do you have anything to say maybe about um, that the the you know the what determines the structural properties that we do somehow fix on? Well, some of it isn't equidynamic at all. Um, right. But uh, here, here are some examples of things that uh, you might rule out. Um, I'll give you uh, – let me see. Maybe I should just give you one example. So let's say we're, we're, we're thinking about predators and prey. Uh, uh, if I want to know how the, the number of prey will change – what do I have to know about the predators? Um, it seems pretty obvious the number of predators will matter a lot. What about the particular positions of the predators? After all, whether something gets eaten or not depends on the position of a particular predator. Uh, but still I can reason probabilistically about this in roughly the same way I reason about the crowds at the airport. Uh, I can uh, – if I – Assume that the predators take on some fixed probability distribution or other 
uh, the, sorry, the predator's positions take on some fixed probability distribution or other uh, over the longer term. So there's a given a certain number of predators, there's a certain probability that doesn't change much that I'll run into a predator here or a predator here or a predator here. Mm-hmm. Then I don't need to track in my model the positions of individual predators. This probability distribution is going to be enough uh, to tell me how likely encounters are in particular places. And in fact, I can even abstract away from that uh, uh, and uh, if I have some statistics and just assume that uh, the uh, for a fixed number of predators uh, and prey, the rate of capture will be much the same regardless of fluctuations in particular positions because it's really that probability distribution that matters and that probability distribution, whatever it is, mm-hmm. is not changing. Okay. Um, so at the, you know, to continue in, in the biological or in, in, in fact psychological um, uh, vein, you at the, towards the end of the book you, you make a very interesting claim. Um, behind every great deterministic theory in the biological and social sciences is a stochastic and equidynamic rationale. And I was just wondering if you might uh, elaborate on, on that claim. Um, and also, um, it, there doesn't seem to be, at least on the surface, very many deterministic theories in, in biology or the social sciences. Um, so could you could you explain that remark? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe um, I should I should first of all say it's not uh, uh, it's not the case that this ration, the equidynamic rationale is uh, the only rationale. It's one of one one of several rationales that prop up the theory. So the equidynamics does some work. It doesn't do all the work. Okay. Um, but what I'm thinking is this: that there are, there are quite a few deterministic theories. I mean. The reality is not deterministic, but uh, except maybe at the level of particles. But there are quite a few deterministic theories. So, in population ecology, for example, it's not at all uncommon to have uh, deterministic equations in your models saying how the predator and prey populations will change. Uh, in population genetics, the there's a deterministic version of the theory which seems to uh, which works pretty well for certain kinds of problems. Uh, in in the social case, although it's it is it is normal to put in an error term or something like that, it's that's usually put in on top of some deterministic underlying deterministic mm-hmm. uh, relation. Not again, not that scientists necessarily think that determinism is the way it is out there, but deterministic models seem good enough much of the time. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Well, it's basically because fluctuations cancel out. So you have a lot of irregularity and stochasticity out there in the world, but the 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 little jerks and wiggles and pulls in one direction tend to get cancelled out by the same in the other direction, uh, and so you have systems that quite reliably, not completely reliably, uh, follow the the uh, trajectory of the average, the expected value of uh, of these different quantities so that is a kind of probabilistic rationale everything cancels out and so what you will see is behavior that deterministically follows the average for a deterministic theory okay um let me just let me just go back a little bit um 
in the book, you also pre- present what you call your uh, pre-formationist view uh, of uh, of a history of the concept of probability. Um, so those of us who are uh, at all aware of this history, the uh, Ian Hacking's book is is pretty much the sort of the urtext is um, the emergence of probability, and and you think that his approach uh, is deeply wrong, um, and instead defend this preformationist view. Mm-hmm. Um, could you could you explain your alternative history? Well, the alternative history is in some sense that there is no history. <laughs> of course, that's not quite right. Uh, hacking, hacking, hacking's book is about the development of the the very concept of probability, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and in particular the development of the concept of classical probability that I suppose reaches its reaches its apex with uh, Laplace, but but is gotten going by people like Leibniz well before Laplace, about, I guess that would be a good 100 years earlier. So this is during the 18th century. Well, the, the lead-up to Leibniz is during the 17th century. So the, the thought behind Hacking's history is there was no coherent concept of probability, uh, and then something happened that made it possible. So a, 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 a classic kind of story in the history of ideas. If my view about the ubiquity of equidynamics is right, then something very much like the concept of physical probability has to have been around long before Leibniz, uh, uh, thousands of years before, maybe tens of thousands of years before. And so what hacking documents and of course he isn't just making it up mm-hmm. what he documents can't be the emergence of probability or the concept of probability uh, instead it has to be an emergence of self-consciousness about this concept the concept is always there what's developed is a is the uh, uh, an understanding of what concept has already been there uh, moving from uh, at the beginning from a almost perhaps complete lack of awareness that the concept is there so people are using these modes of thought without being fully aware of what those modes of thought presuppose, perhaps typical for the system one kind of stuff, uh, to the point where not only do they know it's there, but they have elaborate mathematical and philosophical theories of it. So something is emerging for sure. Uh, not probability, of course. Hacking thinks the concept of probability is emerging. I think the uh, our consciousness of the concept, our theory of the concept is emerging. Okay. Um, let me just, uh, this, I had another question about um, uh, the use of probabilistic reasoning in um, some theories um, for creationism. I think I mentioned this to you. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the things that um, some, at least some creationists um, will argue um, is that, uh, you know, the, the probability, you know, they seem to be using probabilistic reasoning um, uh, of our world just having, you know, sort of come about as a matter of chance or, you know, physical chance, whatever, um, mm-hmm. uh, is just not not plausible. Um 
and uh, and so they conclude in some way with additional premises that um, you know it must have, there must have been some sort of a, a divine creator. Now it's, it seems that there they're applying probabilistic reasoning, uh, and it would seem to be the same sort of you know innate or in other word in any sense in some sense you know uh, um, universal. Um, um, sense of mm-hmm. uh, ability right. of, of, prob- of to reason probabilistically. Um, right. There, it, one might say, well, somehow it, it has gone awry in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you respond to that, to somebody who argues that way using probabilistic, probabilistic reasoning? Is that just one of the cases where we've, you know, just gotten it wrong? Um well, I think equidynamics does provide uh, some of the probabilistic premises, and the, the premises it provides are correct. Uh-huh. Uh, it's what happens next that's wrong. So um, I think here's a, here's a simple analogy. Suppose uh, I'm rolling three dice. Okay. How long is it going to take me to get three sixes? Mm-hmm. Well, that depends partly on... Uh, uh, on the probability of getting a six on a single die roll, which equidynamics will successfully tell me is correctly tell me is one and six, mm-hmm. but it also depends on exactly what the rolling protocol is. So uh, the the creationists are, are thinking in terms of a rolling protocol where you roll all three dice every single roll. Uh, uh, the the retort from people who understand what's going on with evolution and natural selection is that's not the correct analogy for what's happening in the biological case. Instead, what's happening there is something more like this, that you roll a dice. Uh, if any of them come up six, you leave those facing six upwards and just roll the remaining ones. Do that and you'll get to three sixes a, a lot more quickly. Uh-huh. Okay? So the equidynamic part there, it's the same for both parties, and it's correct. The chance of a six is one in six. It's the question of whether, uh, as it were, nature hangs on to its sixes that they differ on. Uh, and that's that's not something that's resolved by equidynamics. That's okay. where the creationists go wrong. I see. Okay, good. Um, we're, we're running out of time, um, mm. but I did want to ask... Uh, about what your next project is. Are you working on a follow-up book to this book or something completely different? Not a follow-up to this book. In fact, in some ways, this book is a follow-up to another book about probability and complex systems. So I think I've done enough of that for a while. Uh-huh. Uh, right now, I'm working on two things. One is uh, the question of uh, how science works very generally, uh, why science is so successful. Uh, and the other is a book that has nothing to do with science. Uh, it's about why philosophy is so successful. That is, how people sitting alone in darkened rooms thinking can ever come up with anything interesting and substantive to say about the world. I, I think a lot of people might disagree that there is anything interesting uh, that they are coming up with in their darkened room. Not, I'm not one of them. But. Right. Well, having having given over my entire life to sitting in darkened rooms coming up with things, I'm also not one of them. <laughs> uh, I suppose you might think of this project as a 
desperate search for a rationale for my entire existence. <laughs> okay. Well, with that, um, I think we're uh, our time is up. But it's been uh, it's been great to talk with you about your new book. Yeah. Thanks very much. Um, it's been it's been fun to talk about it. Good. Okay. Thanks. And bye. Okay. Bye, Carrie. You've been listening to an interview with Michael Strevens, professor of philosophy at New York University, about his new book, Tychomancy, Inferring Probability from Causal Structure, which is just out from Harvard University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoy the podcast, and thank you for listening.